Would you please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4? Hebrews chapter 4, and would you stand? I'm going to read verses 1 to 3 and then 11 to 13. This is the Word of God. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Down in verse 11. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account." The words of God. Heavenly Father, we thank You that on the seventh day You rested from all Your work, and then we sinned, and we departed from Your rest. But You sent forth Jesus Christ that we might re-enter Your rest, first in this life, and then with the promise of resurrection from the dead forever and ever. I pray that Your Holy Spirit would minister among us convicting us of sin and righteousness so that if any of us are living and walking in a counterfeit faith, an unsaving faith, a faith that does not save, would the Word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, do a surgery in us this morning. Help us to see the truth that we might call out by faith and enter your rest. We pray for the one billion, uh, give or take, Roman Catholics all over the world who just do not understand the gospel. Today has passed for Teresa. And whether or not she is a saint is not up to any man on earth, but only to your sovereign authority. And so we submit ourselves to your sovereign authority, and we pray that your spirit would convict Roman Catholics all over the world that this just does not make sense. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Last week, uh, we saw that our experience in this life is much like Israel's experience in the wilderness. So Israel was delivered from slavery. They were on their way to the promised land. In between is the wilderness. So they could look back 
to what God had done, and they were supposed to look forward to what God had promised to do. And so while they were wandering in the wilderness, though they were no longer slaves, they were not resting. They were not in the promise of God. They, they had not yet achieved what God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what God had promised to them through Moses. I'll take you out of slavery. I'll give you the land that I promised to your forefathers. They were wandering. They were not at rest. Israel failed to believe that they could or that they would enter into that rest. They they failed to believe that the God who delivered them from slavery in Egypt was powerful enough to overcome the Canaanites, because they had fortified cities and they were, they were giants. They were taller. They were stronger. They were more numerous. They had better weapons and so they failed to believe and therefore an entire generation fell in the wilderness so they did not enter God's rest. And, and the illustration that the author of Hebrews gives us is this. Two out of the entire generation that came out of slavery, and we're told it's some 600,000 men. So two out of 6,000 men entered into God's rest. Joshua and Caleb alone, not even Moses, Aaron or Miriam, entered into God's rest. Each died in the wilderness for a different reason. The nation itself died in the wilderness because of a lack of faith. So, so the point is for us, and this was the conclusion last week, is how, how is our faith? Will the ratio be anything like that in the church? And, and as, a, as, a, as a shepherd over this flock, my concern is not to make you feel good, but to make you certain. So that, that we don't lose any sheep as we travel by faith toward the promised land, that we will all enter into that rest. And therefore, we all must invite the Holy Spirit to convict us, invite the Word of God to do a surgery in us, as I prayed, that we will know for certain that our faith is real and that it, that it is saving faith that grants us entrance into God's rest. Now, what is God's rest? Last week, I emphasized that God's rest is what is yet to happen. It's, it's resurrection from the dead. It's, it's the new heavens and the new earth. And that, ultimate, that is ultimately God's rest. That, that we're moving toward a reality where sin and death and suffering and sadness is no more. And that, that is the culmination, the apex, the climax, the finality of God's rest. We don't have time to, to nuance this too much, and in fact, we're going to come back for a third sermon. It was going to be two sermons, but we're going to take a look at chapter 4, verses 4 through 10 next time to look more closely at what is meant by God's rest. Sufficient for today is to assert that, that God's rest is ultimately resurrection from the dead, life everlasting with God in His new heavens and new earth. But there's also a sense in which that future hope can be drawn into our, our experience today. That there is a, an aspect to rest that, that can be ours today. You see, uh, fallen humanity believes that we must work, we must achieve, we must earn favor with God. And so part of the rest that we can enjoy today while we wait for the fullness of rest uh, when we are resurrected from the dead 
is a, a ceasing of trying to earn God's favor by the works that we do. We can rest in the finish work of Jesus Christ. He did it all. And when he said, it is finished, we say, amen, Lord Jesus, you did it all. Now we rest in what you have accomplished for us. So we'll look, we'll look at that more next week. It's both and. Now, I tend to emphasize what is yet to happen. Resurrection from the dead, new heavens and new earth. And I don't know if this is necessary, but it, perhaps it's a reaction against uh, a lack of emphasis in the church that I discern. A lack of emphasis in an eternal perspective, in eternal glory, in future rest. And so, so that's, that seems to be my personal emphasis, but you have to know that it is both and. Now, the main point of today's preaching text that I've read, verses 1 to 3 and 11 to 13, is this. There is still time to enter God's rest. So long as you're drawing breath, there is still time. Once you die, there's no more opportunity to enter God's rest. You are either in God's rest at that point or you are not in God's rest. There is no uh, post-mortem sanctification, glorification, sainthood. You, you cannot do what Pope Francis is trying to do today and make somebody after the fact into a saint. You are either a saint before you die or you will never be a saint. Therefore, we must examine ourselves now, today, lest we come to the end of our life and discover that what we thought was faith, what, what we thought would grant us entrance into that rest is actually unbelief, that we were mistaken. The faith that we thought we had, we didn't actually have. And therefore, and you go, I don't want to jump around in the Bible too much here, but I just, all, just thought of at the beginning of James, you should, should be glad when trials come into your life because that's how you know that your faith is genuine. When, when you stand up in the midst of trials and suffering that, and you still have faith, then, then you count that as a joy because you say, oh yes, God, I still believe. My faith is real. Because unless God brings testing into our life, how do we know? I, I'm a preacher of God's Word, and I'll tell you, it's not that I don't have confidence or assurance in my salvation, but how do I know? How do I know that, that what I'm preaching is not just head knowledge? I know from my studies, there's a lot of people that study the Bible that aren't saved. How do I Trials, testing. We'll get into that a little bit more. We must examine ourselves now. So long as we can say it's today, which is today, and then tomorrow's a new today, and next week is a new today, so long as God, by His grace, allows you to draw breath, you have to test your faith. I have to test my faith so that I don't come to the end of my life and find out that I've been disqualified due to a counterfeit faith. Let's take a look at verses 1 to 3 again. Remember, last week we said that a whole generation fell in the wilderness and they died. They thought they should make it to the promised land, but they didn't. 
That's what this therefore is about. Therefore, in light of, of, of the example and the illustration of Israel, therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, that is, while you're still drawing breath, while, while God is still extending the gospel, salvation, forgiveness, rest, promise, while that, while that is still available, let us fear let us fear. Now, so many pulpits don't want to encourage the church to be afraid. But the, the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, this is serious. Be afraid. Fear for your soul. Fear that you might not be now and you might not, at the end, enter into God's rest. Don't be casual with this. Don't just coast after past commitments. Well, I said the sinner's prayer. I'm fine. Now I can go about my life the way I want to go about my life. Because I said a prayer when I was four or seven or 20 or 30, and I know that the gospel is saved by grace through faith, not by works, that no one may boast. Therefore, there's nothing I can do. Therefore, I've said, I've done, I've prayed, I am fine. I'm going to live for me now. Whoa, 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 whoa. If that's your understanding of the gospel, you might not. You're likely not. It's almost certain that you're not in God's rest and you will not enter into God's rest by resurrection from the dead into eternal life. Because that's a counterfeit gospel. Let us be afraid. Parents, the goal is not to get your children to say the sinner's prayer. The goal is to Disciple your children every moment that you have so that they live the sinner's prayer. Let us fear. Lest, lest, unless any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, the idea here is uh, be afraid, don't be casual so that you don't find out that you haven't entered into God's rest. And the idea is not, this is not directed to unbelievers. This exhortation is directed at the church. Unbelievers, they're not even in view here. What The pastoral concern of this text is that anyone who calls himself or herself Christian will not come to the end of their life to find out that they were wrong. Review the illustration. For good news came to us just as to them. The them is Israel. Good news of, of deliverance from slavery. In our case, slavery from sins. We're delivered from slavery to sin. Uh, the people in the wilderness, they affirm that. Yes, we're free from Pharaoh. We're, we are free from slavery. And though they would grumble about that freedom and they would sometimes want to go back into Egypt, into slavery, because it was a better life than wandering around in the wilderness, 
They, they had the good news of deliverance from slavery, and yet the message that they heard did not benefit them because they were casual with it. Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. I imagine it was more than two who entered into God's eternal rest that came out of the Exodus. I just think of, for example, Moses, Miriam, and Aaron. They died in the wilderness. I, I have every confidence to meet them one day. So we're not saying that, that two out of 600,000, which if you include women and, and children, is probably closer to two million people, that, that only Joshua and Caleb were saved eternally. But God was making a powerful point. Right? The illustration is that Israel, a whole mass of them came out of slavery, but only two went into God's rest. I have to think, and this is frightening, that in Canada today, the ratio hopefully isn't that bad, but there are many people who sit in church week after week, Month after month, year after year, decade after decade, and they're not saved. And the good news that they receive does not benefit them because they're not united by faith with those who are listening. Okay. Invite the Holy Spirit right now. Are you listening? Do you have genuine saving faith or is your faith counterfeit? I'm going to pause. Invite the Holy Spirit. There's no more important question than this. Does the message of the Gospel that you hear benefit you? Verse 3. It is we who have believed not just heard but truly, genuinely believed that enter that rest. And only we. As the Holy Spirit has said, I swore in my wrath, they, those who do not believe, shall not enter my rest. Not every churchgoer is a part of the church. Not every so-called Christian is currently enjoying God's rest. One way that you can sort of examine yourself is, do you rest in Christ's finished work or are you trying to add by your own works what you cannot add? I, a couple years ago, I had a real scare with this. 
Because I, I, I understand the gospel of grace, but that I came to a point in my life through difficult circumstances where God revealed to me that as much as I was trusting in Jesus Christ for my salvation, I wanted to just add the smallest little bit that, that I might maintain my relationship with Christ, that I might add to it, that I might even surpass maybe some others. And, and, and in my desire to be obedient in following Jesus Christ, I, I came to see that there was a very subtle but very real thread of legalism that was braided into my gospel. Now, was I not saved before that? I believe that God's grace carried me through my legalism. It, wasn't, it was not an obvious legalism. So I, I still believe that I was entered into God's rest when I was a child. Oh, but that was frightening. That was frightening. Are you adding? Not every so-called Christian is currently enjoying God's rest. Are you enjoying God's rest? When Jesus says, it is finished, you say amen and amen. It's finished. It's finished. I can't add to it. God can't love me any more than He loves me now. I cannot be any more righteous than I am now. I have the full righteousness of Jesus Christ. Case closed. Done. Or are you, are you trying to achieve just a little more righteousness? Now, be careful. Don't fall out the other side. Don't give yourself license to sin either. Not every so-called Christian is going to enjoy God's eternal rest. Many on that day will come face to face with Jesus and they'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do many miracles in your name? And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Being active in ministry is not an assurance of salvation. Having even very accurate doctrine is not enough. Lord, Lord. They, they, they said, Lord, Lord. They knew who Jesus was, and yet... They missed something. And Jesus says, only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Now, are we going to do it perfectly? No, but the, but the will is to rest in God, the finished work of Christ, but then to walk by faith. What is the will of God? To walk by faith. Uh, to believe. Jesus Himself said, what is my work? But to, to believe in the One who sent me. To have faith. Just as many in Israel fell in the wilderness, so many so-called Christians will fall in this life and not be welcomed into heaven. And, and I, my heart is broken for Roman Catholics all over the world today. I, will God, by His grace, save some who call themselves Roman Catholic? I imagine He will. But it will be in spite of their Roman Catholicism. He will break through that somehow. He will show them the, the real gospel and, and they will be saved. And maybe they continue to go to, to a Roman Catholic building and participate in things that they shouldn't or don't need to participate in. And I'm not going to put a limit on God's grace. But, but what I can say, and what my heart does break, is for the billions of people who feel that by their baptism and their good works, they're set. And then I think of, of us. I think of you. Is that us? Do we fear? This is why the writer of Hebrews says, 
Let us fear. Now, how do we how do we fear appropriately? How do we fear without falling into despair? How, how do we fear without without having no assurance of our salvation? Because I believe that God wants us to have an assurance of our salvation. This is not to send you all out wondering and doubting, uh, but it is at the same time an opportunity for us to inspect ourselves and to invite the Holy Spirit to do so. How do we fear without falling into despair? I think the answer begins in, the, in verse 3. It is we who have believed that enter that rest. So, where we have to begin is, is asking ourselves, what do we believe? And, and then saying, do I really believe it? Do I really believe it? Or do I just believe that I believe it? That's hard. How do you, how do you know the difference? I think there's, there's some ways that we can help one another in this. Well, first of all, we test our faith. That means that we, we have to be talking about our faith with one another. We have to actually have those conversations uh, with one another. Say, what do you believe? Why do you believe it? Test our faith. Read the Bible. Discuss it with one another. Talk about death. Death is such a sobering test of faith. I, I see, I see in, in people who are near death, I see in Ed and Marge right now, they're testing their faith. Will this hold up? Will Jesus really be there to, to welcome me into heaven? How's your faith? Test it. What do you believe? And, and this is, again, maybe personal emphasis, but we, we've desensitized ourselves to the cross. We have to go back and ask ourselves, what do we believe about Jesus? Do we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, fully God and fully man? Do we believe that He came, that He lived a sinless, perfect life? Do we believe that He carried our sins in His body to the cross? Do we believe that He died? Do we believe that He physically, bodily came back to life? Do we believe that He ascended as a man and is still a man in heaven. That, that's a great place to start. Without faith in that, you're not saved. But, but I find that over time, it's hard to remember if we believe those things or if we've just thought we've believed those things for so long that we don't question them anymore. This is why, personally, where I'm at, and I encourage you to consider this, I've begun to push forward into the promises of God. The promises of God that seem so fantastic and so big and so unbelievable. That's where I'm testing my faith. Do I really believe that, that on my last day a door will open and a voice will say, come up here and I will be in heaven? Do I actually believe that the body that, that you will put in the ground for me will rise from that place? Do I, do I believe in a final judgment where some people, the wrath of God for some people passes over them and for others they, they are sent in their resurrected bodies by a loving God to an eternal hell? Do I believe that? Do I believe that God will glorify this creation and put heaven on earth? Do I believe it? And then do I believe that I'll live forever? You see, if you want to test your faith, just ask yourself, do you believe those things? In some ways, those are harder to believe for people who have been in the church 
than what is already accomplished in Christ. We test our faith. And, and that's why I've already spoken of this. That's why God, God makes our life difficult from time to time. Oh, who wants to suffer? I don't. Who wants trials? I don't. But I had a friend in university who uh, was conscripted into the Norwegian Armed Forces because everyone has to do their time in Norway. And he said, I never knew what I could do until I was tested. He had to sit in the most northern, remote part of Norway in a hole in the ground with, with a makeshift uh, branch ceiling over top of him covered in meters of snow. And he had to sit there with his finger on the trigger watching for anyone to come by. Now here's the thing, Norway is not at war right now. What are the chances that somebody is going to come by? An enemy is going to come by. But this was training, and so uh, he did it. And he said, you know what? I, when you're getting into the second day, the end of the first week, and you're still in a hole in the ground covered by snow, your fingers are frozen, you're bored, and you keep doing it, you realize something about yourself, that you could do something that you never thought you could do before. So it is with the Christian. God sends trials and suffering and difficulty into our life so that, so that we can test our faith. Is it real? Will it hold up? Secondly, we look for evidences of salvation. Evidences. Jesus made it so plain, and, and this is not against the gospel. It's not like Jesus forgot the gospel for a moment when he said that good trees bear good fruit and bad trees bear bad fruit. And so we're going to cut down the bad trees and throw them in the fire. So look at your life. Is there, is there good fruit in your life? Is there evidence of a true, genuine, saving faith? If if you don't have good fruit in your life, you're not saved. Now that fruit, those works, those evidences don't save you. See, this is got to be careful. We don't, we don't look for evidence of salvation and then pat ourselves on the back and say, I think I'm good to go because I'm a pretty good person. You, you just fall humbly before God. You say, oh God, thank you. Thank you for this confirmation that the faith I have in the finished work of Christ is real. That, that by your grace, you're you're bringing good fruit out of my life because I know that I'm a rotten tree and unless you are active in me, there is not good fruit really in my life. Now, There's something that we can be so self-deceptive. There are some unsaved people that are really nice people. The common grace that God has put in their life is just so wonderful that you look at them and you compare them with the people in your church sitting right beside you right now, just look over. And you say, wow, you know, you're so much, you're so much better person than Adam is. And then that that's causes a problem. And you say, well, then we start comparing ourselves to one another and we compare ourselves to unsaved people. And, and, and if you're having a particularly bad day, you're like, well, and I've said this before, and I, I think it's comical, but tragic. 
I haven't robbed any banks. I haven't killed anyone. Therefore, I'm a good person. I don't know why it's those two things that we measure ourselves against. I mean, who's robbing banks anymore anyway? Uh, but, but that seems to be the, the two things that we say. And, and we forget that Jesus says, you know, if you have anger toward your brother, you've murdered him in your heart. So, so we, we take a lower standard and then we compare ourselves and we, we pride ourselves. We say we're fine. Uh, that's just a, the works-based gospel in different clothing. So then, knowing that we can deceive ourselves and that we're prone to overestimate our goodness, how do we look for evidence in our life and know that it's really good fruit? You compare yourself, not to anyone else, but to yourself. How have I changed in the last year? If I haven't changed in the last year, that's, that's a red flag. How have I changed in the last five years? How have I changed in the last 10 years? Now, this is presuming that you've been a Christian for at least 10 years. How have I changed since I became a Christian? If there is little or no change in your life, You're not in God's rest. You're not saved. It's counterfeit. Let us fear. Lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach God's grace, God's rest. I would even suggest to you that an evidence that you want to begin looking for is you need to be aware of what is the next thing that God is working on in you. Where's the conviction of sin in your life right now? Angie and I are far from perfect at walking by grace or by faith. But one thing that we've begun to do, and I would commend it to you, is ask yourself, what's next? Where, where do you need to invite God to make a change? That's a powerful evidence that you're saved, that you want to be holy as God is holy. If you don't want to be holy, then you're not holy. And the word saint is the Greek word for holy one. If you don't want to be holy, then you're not holy. You're not a saint. And your faith is counterfeit. But if, if you desire to be holy, then you are already holy in your heart. God has given you a new heart. And He will progressively increase your holiness from one degree of glory to another until He gets the job done. That is, until when He invites you to enter ultimately into His rest once and for all. Therefore, thirdly, so there's a third thing. So first, how do you know if your faith is genuine? Well, you test it. And we've talked about a variety of ways that you can test your faith, what you believe. Secondly, you look for evidence of salvation by a changed life. 
There should be a holy discontent in your life. A righteous dissatisfaction with yourself, the church, and the world. Thirdly, we look for endurance, both in our faith and in the evidences of our faith. It's no good to have said, well, I kicked that habit for a year and now I'm back into it. Oh, well, we fall. We're, we're, we're going to fall. Like a, a materialistic person does, doesn't become uh, unmaterialistic overnight. And, and there will be those times when you're weaning yourself off shopping and materialism and you'll say, you know what, my treasure is not in this world. I don't need to own that. I need to grab hold of Jesus with everything I got. And yet you will still have that moment when you're at the shopping mall and you buy something that you really don't need, a luxury that is too much for you. And you get home and you don't have to throw everything into question, but you just have to say, ah, my flesh reared itself again. And then you get back working toward what God is doing in your life. I just use that one example. But you look for endurance in the things that you believe through testing your faith and in the evidences of your life, that, that the, the changes that God is making in your life, they last and they build on one another. They compound over time so that, so that it's not a little bit forward, three steps back, and then something else. Go forward in this area, then back this, and I'm going to try to get a hold of this, and then back on that. Building, compounding, enduring. So we look for faith, change life, and endurance in both. Therefore, we do not coast into heaven. We don't coast into God's rest off past decisions, past affirmations of faith, or past good deeds. Rather, look at verse 11. Let us therefore strive. Strive is a forward-looking verb. Striving after. It's the idea of someone who's running a race and they see the finish line and they're striving with all of the strength that they have to get their body over that finish line. It's not looking back and say, well, I started the race and God should be satisfied with that. Striving, looking forward. We're striving. What's the finish line? Entering God's rest. And so I think there is a sense in which that, that can be known in this life, but ultimately, it comes when we die. We're running until the day we die. Why do we do this? So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience and faithlessness that was characteristic of the Exodus generation who fell in the wilderness. Don't die in the church and then go to hell. We exercise our faith every day to ensure that it is genuine, growing faith. 
Peter writes about this. I don't have time to go there. Commend it to you. 2 Peter 1, 5 to 10. He says, let us make our election sure. I mean, the whole doctrine of election comes in here, right? Which, I mean, if you've been thinking through what I've been talking about, you're like, well, but what about election? Isn't this all up to God? Yeah, sure, it is. But we must make sure that we are saved. We must make sure that we are of the elect. Make your election sure by adding to your faith virtue and to virtue steadfastness and to steadfastness endurance and to endurance brotherly love and to brotherly love agape love. Then you will know that you are saved. You will make your election sure and you will be profitable you will be uh, useful to God in this life for a day of judgment is coming and on that day God will examine us not by uh, by our own estimation but what is he going to use to measure us how will he decide if we are in or out saved or not saved entering his rest or dying in the wilderness how will he decide He will measure us against His Word. Verse 12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Now that verse, it gets, it gets used in a lot of ways, and they're not necessarily wrong. It's talking about the power of God's Word to do a surgery in our soul. It's about the, the penetrating power of God's Word to change us, uh, to convict us of sin. But in its context, you know what it's about? We will end our days not being absolutely sure and certain of our own salvation. Paul himself says, I have not yet attained this resurrection from the dead, but with everything I got, I strive on, I keep running, so that by some means I might attain resurrection from the dead. Now, now that's the Apostle Paul. He said, I, I'm not absolutely certain here, folks. Now, he had an assurance of his salvation. In another place, he says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. I'm ready for the crown of glory. So, so he was a man who had assurance of his salvation. And, and, and with that assurance, you know what he said? I haven't yet attained it. I keep running. And he never puts himself above God to judge himself. He says, there will come a day when I will stand face to face with God and then his word will go to work. And, and his word will be accurate, so accurate as to separate my soul from my spirit. And then God will be able to tell, though I can't tell, God will be able to tell what were my intentions? What were my motives? Where was my heart? How was my faith? And until that day, so long as it is called today, I'm going to strive to enter that rest. This is not a works-based gospel that is being called for here. The striving is a striving to be found in Christ. It's a striving to weed out every strand of legalism. To look for any, any freckles of licentiousness where we give ourselves permission to sin. 
It's about saying, God, by your grace and by your will, invite me into your rest. That's the striving. We do not want it to be said of us, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. I would be very surprised that God would grant me and us such a gift to say that every single one of us is saved. I'd be very surprised. I don't know. But if that is true, then it means some of us in this room right now are walking in counterfeit faith. I don't say this to alarm you or to upset you or to put a burden on you. I say this because I love you. And I want to see you in glory. Let us test our faith. Let us look for evidence of this faith. Let us endure. For the Word of God is sharp. Dividing soul from spirit. Laying bare everyone before our Maker. If you don't know if you're saved, fall before God's mercy and grace. Don't put it off. If you want to come forward and speak with me, the elders will come forward too. We'd love to pray with you. Coming forward doesn't mean that you're saying you're not saved, but let's pray for one another. Lest we find at the end of it all, some don't enter God's rest. I'm going to pray for you now and then the elders will come forward and we'll be ready to pray with you at the front. Let's pray.